All right. I've been doing a, little, a few little series at the same time. We're kind of juggling. And uh, one of them is uh, on bodybuilding, meaning spiritual bodybuilding, building the body of Christ. And there's going to be a, at least a second message on that, maybe a third. I'm hoping just one more. But uh, we're going to take a little respite from even that message and the one that's on the, and the joy of the Lord and some of the things we're juggling. And uh, I wanted to do a two-part message also. Uh, this one I hope to do back-to-back, though. Uh, called The Greatest Love Story in the Universe. The Greatest Love Story in the Universe. And I want you to turn to the book of Hosea. You know, uh, several years ago, probably about 30 years ago now, it's been, a, I don't know, a long time. I don't know how long it's been. But uh, Cross TV, a production company, television production company, and also a broadcasting company with, that had their own station and stuff, approached me and asked me if I would do over a dozen messages on any subject I wanted to pick. And I picked a series I entitled uh, Divine Wedding Portraits of Christ and His Bride. And I wanted to show these divine wedding portraits. People love wedding portraits, but I wanted to show the most radical, most incredible, sometimes the strangest, but definitely the most beautiful wedding portraits anywhere uh, in the universe. And they are in the Old Testament. They have to do with a divine romance, a cosmic romance between God and his bride. An eternal plan that stretches back into eternity past, before the first day of creation, before the creation of the universe, whereby God had set his affection on a people he would foreknow in his heart before they were created, and had planned to not only love those he'd make in his image, who could share his joy, but to redeem them through uh, sending his son into the world to pay for their sins. And from Genesis to Revelation, you have this love story. Whether it's in the first couple, Adam and Eve, and that was one of the wedding portraits I shared as well, which we won't get into other than to say Adam is put to a deep sleep, which is a metaphor or picture of death, and his side is opened up and he bleeds sacrificially and out of his side from the rib and from the flesh, Eve is formed. And then she falls into sin and to save her, or to be with her, to, keep, to have unity with her, he goes to the tree of knowledge of good and evil, partakes of it, and dies himself. Yet he does that in sin as the first Adam. But it's a picture of Christ who, in obedience to his father, as the second Adam, also called the last Adam, reverses the curse by going to the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but going to the cross, which becomes the tree of life for us, and sacrifices himself. And he's put into a deep sleep called death, and his side is opened up, and out comes blood and water, the emblems of birth, and he's able to bring forth his bride, the church. And you have, that's just the beginning from the first couple chapters of Genesis, guys. And you go all the way through the Old Testament, you see wedding portrait after wedding portrait after wedding portrait, and once you start seeing the hand of God through typology, and I love the, all the typologies, but the wedding portraits just are stunning to me because they're the most stunning to me because uh, they show God's profound love for us. Okay? They show his divine plan for us, as do the other typologies. But the wedding portraits show the beauty of God, the ugliness of who we became in rejecting his love and going our own way, but his relentless pursuing love whereby he pursues his bride to the point of death to win her back. And we see this from Genesis, uh, the first few chapters, to the last few chapters of the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, to where 
He comes back for his bride in Revelation chapter 19, 7, when his bride is made ready. And then in Revelation 21 and 22, New Jerusalem is decked out as a bride adorned for her husband, and it will comprise all of the saints from the Old and the New Testament, and we will live happily forever after with the Lord. Okay? That is the most beautiful love story in the universe, and very few people know it. This blows me away. Most Christians don't know it. Do you know that? What I just said, you've heard this stuff for years, right? You've been studying the Word for years. A lot of believers, and they don't realize when you realize how much the Lord loves you, how much He cares about you. We love Him because He first loved us. He was forgiven much, loves much. And you just desire to be closer to Him and do His will. Amen? And then you have the model of Christ's love for us as to how we're to love our wives if you're a husband. Or if you're a wife, too. By the way, if you read 1 Peter chapter 2, the end there, in the very beginning, you see that Christ is a picture also for the wife as to how she's to love her husband. Most people don't preach that, but that's there, too. And also as to how, as how to love one another, whether you're married or not. You know, forgive one another as God has forgiven you in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. And so the cross becomes a revelation of who God is and his great love because the Bible says in 1 John 4, 8 and 1 John 4, 16 that God is love. But also becomes an ethic, an, a, an object of instruction as to how we're to live our lives and apply who God is and what he is to us and who he is to us in regard to how we're to treat one another. Amen? So let's get our brains wrapped around this now. I have a confession to make. I wanted this just to be one message today. But when I got done, man, I was up plenty of time. I had my message pretty much done last night. Got up with a lot of time to spare just so I could seek the Lord and pray and put some finishing touches on it. And man, I just had to add some beautiful things. And before I ended, it was about 25 pages long, which would last, uh, you'd be, you'd, be excited and your eyes might be bright for a little bit about, wow, God is so awesome. He loves it so much. Then they would cross-sided. And they're like, what is going on here? You know? So it's going to be a two-part message. Is that good? I think it's better because I love to focus on the love of God. Amen? And if you say, if somebody asks what your pastor preaches on, you'd probably mention, one of the things you'd mention is the love of God if, you, if you've been here any time long. You know? And you'd, you'd preach on the, holy, the holiness of God, right? We talk about that. And and salvation and the meaning of salvation for the lost and also what it means for the saved. Amen? We, we talk about all those things, God's grace constantly. And, and when we talk about God's love, we're talking about His grace, His patience, His kindness. Amen? Now, in the book Hosea, it's just one wedding portrait, but it is, these wedding portraits are, are so heavy. They're so amazing. And go to Zechariah or go to Hosea uh, 12.10. Hosea 12.10. And I, I start there instead of the first couple verses or so because it's in Hosea 12.10 that we come up with a very interesting verse. And we read this. Is there iniquity in Gilead? Okay. Surely they are worthless. In Gilgal, they sacrifice bulls. Okay, uh, I'm sorry, I'm in verse uh, 11. I'm like, it was an interesting verse. It got really interesting just there. I don't remember that part uh, this morning. But verse 10, <laughs> sorry, I get verse 11. I'm like, yeah, this is very interesting. How am I going to tie this in? 
I also have spoken to the prophets, and Hosea is one of the prophets. And I have new, and gave numerous visions. That's how he spoke to them. And through the prophets, I gave what? Parables. He gave parables. And parables are ways of comparison. For instance, a story that shines light on a present reality uh, and something that's taking place and, and can give us insight. And oftentimes the Lord will use symbols and parables to, get, to, to help us better understand his truth. And what's crazy about this is God just doesn't give Hosea a parable. God uses Hosea as a living parable. Hosea, you want to be a prophet? You want to be used by me? Well, guess what? I'm going to have you marry a prostitute who's going to be unfaithful to you and break your heart over and over again. And you're going to have the most painful love life in Israel for some time. But you're going to enter into my pain. You're going to enter into my sufferings and what I'm going through to show the people of Israel what they've done to my heart. And this is very, very interesting because the Lord speaks through parables often. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 5, you know, we read, My beloved has a vineyard. And it's a picture of the vineyard, right? In Jeremiah chapter 18, God tells Jeremiah, he says this, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house and there I will give you my message. Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. That's verses one and two and verse six. So he goes down to the potter's house and he's spitting the, the, the pottery, the clay before it's hard. And he says, if he, if he chooses blessing for the pottery, to fashion the blessing to it, but it becomes evil in his hands. He'll think twice about what he promised them and then he'll fashion them toward destruction. But if he's fashioning them toward judgment and, and he speaks of it's this regarding Israel and the nations. He says this has to do, that's what this, this, this clay is. And I'm fashioning them for, for blessing and they, and they turn wicked, I'll fashion them to destruction. But if I'm fashioning them to destruction, they repent, then I'll fashion them to blessing. And then you get more articulation of that meaning as it, as it pertains to not just Israel and the nations, but us as believers. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, it says you can choose to be a vessel of, of honor or dishonor. You have a choice. But God's sovereign, okay? He wants to bless you. That's his heart because he has mercy over all his works. And he, he desires, he has shut up all of the disobedience, Romans eleven thirty two 32, that he might have mercy on all. He wants to show every mercy, but guess what? If you reject his overtures to come to him and repent, he'll fashion you to destruction. However, if you're going the wrong way, you're saying, hey, I repent, I'm sorry. He'll fashion you for life. So you have all these, and joy, you have all these wonderful parables and pictures, but and you say, well, Jeremiah has an easier job than Hosea, doesn't he? Ah, Jeremiah had a hard job too. Remember, he wrote Lamentations, right? We studied that, uh, a little bit of that recently. So go to Hosea chapter 1 now, and we're going to see how he's this living parable. Hosea chapter 1, verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of harlotry, and have children of harlotry. As one translation says, take a wife of prostitution, have children of prostitution. Meaning as a result of your relationship with the wife that you're going to take, she's going to bear children that come out of her harlotry, her whoredoms, her prostitutions, depending on your transla translation. Take yourself away from harlotry and have children of harlotry. 
For the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. You're going to do this because the land, the people in the land, the promised land, are doing this to me. And this is very, very important that we understand this because this is the pain that the Lord himself is going through. And then we go and look, go, ahead, go to chapter 9. I'm going to be jumping around a lot uh, this morning. Do not rejoice, O Israel, verse 1, with exaltation like the nations, for you have played the harlot, forsaking your God, and you have loved harlots, earnings on every threshing floor. Now, his wife didn't, I mean, adultery is bad enough, but she's actually a picture of a prostitute. Threshing floor and wine press will not feed them, and the new wine will fail them. They remain in the, uh, the Lord's land, but Ephraim will turn to Egypt and Assyria will eat unclean food. So they're in apostasy. And Hosea is, by the way, who's Hosea a picture of? Yahweh, right? The faithful God who gave them out of his abundance life and just blessed them. And, Hosea, and of course, we're seeing that, man, Gomer is a picture of faithless Israel. And now it's interesting. Uh, this is regarding the northern kingdom. A lot of times when we look at Jeremiah, for instance, and Ezekiel, Daniel, we're talking about the southern kingdom, right? Judah. And it, it seems like we spend a lot more time on Judah than the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom had mostly all wicked kings. Uh, you remember there was that civil war uh, when Solomon had taken over from uh, his dad, King David, and he brought, you know, raised the taxes and, uh, you know, or I should say, I'm sorry, you got David, then you got Solomon, then you got Rehoboam, you have the, 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 the divided kingdom, and you had the ten tribes to the north, and then you had the two, right? Judah and Benjamin to the south. And which one went all worse, or first? I should say worse, because actually it says throughout Jeremiah that Judah even became worse than Israel. She became even more wicked, and God's not partial, right? And he had to judge both of them. But over 150 years or so prior to Judah going into captivity to Babylon, before that, the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes, went into captivity to Assyria, a world empire that preceded Babylon. And Hosea is prophesying to the northern kingdom. And he's prophesying between 753 and 715 B.C. And it will be about 722 B.C. that Assyria will sack the northern kingdom. And they'll just be brought into captivity and waylaid and disciplined radically. Now, some say, oh yeah, those are the lost ten tribes. They were never recovered wrong. I can show you the tribe of Asher, people from like, I can show you Paul was from the tribe of Benjamin. These are northern kingdom tribes, right? So some had obviously returned back. Some were left a remnant in the land as well. But here God is addressing the northern kingdom, which is full of apostasy. Now keep in mind, the northern kingdom, uh, they didn't want to go up. Since the kingdom was divided, there was a civil war. They didn't want to go up to Jerusalem, which three times a year, the fathers would take their sons and go to the festivals and worship, the, for instance, the Passover at the Passover feast or Pentecost in the southern kingdom at the temple, right? But guess what? It was a political thing, and it was a divided kingdom. And you remember Jeroboam set up the worship of two golden calves, 
in two different places, actually. I don't have time to get into it. But he tried to set up a false counterfeit form of worship. And God began to judge them. And during Hosea's prophetic announcements, it spanned the life of six wicked kings in the northern kingdom. And he's dealing with people that are worshiping idols and evil kings that are actually aiding and abetting uh, the worship of idols and so forth. And you have to keep in mind now that the metaphor, now this is what blows me away. I think, and so many scholars and so many Bible commentators miss it, you know. They look at the metaphor and they say, well, it's just a metaphor. You know, God uses marriage as a metaphor because it's a good picture of a relationship he wants with us. What? Get your brains around what's really going on. The reality of us being with the Lord is something he planned from ever in the past. And he invented marriage to be a picture of that deep, the deepest of realities that will be with him forever. Do you understand that? Well, the vine, the branches, that's a great picture Jesus used. He was probably strolling along and he saw, well, I'll, I'll say you're the branches, I'm the vine and abide in me. He invented the vine and the branches and the grapes to be a picture of who we are to be in him. The grape juice that comes out, so sweet, he could have made it sour and yucky, but he made it sweet because from the beginning, before we were created, it was supposed to be a picture of Christ's blood. What I'm trying to say to you is these aren't just metaphors that he kind of plucks out there. Oh, this will work as an afterthought. These, the very th things that he's made in creation are specifically designed to be a picture of the deepest reality that we will have with the Lord forever and ever as his bride. Do you understand that? So in the very first chapters of Genesis, when he makes Adam and Eve, do you understand and he puts him into a deep sleep, which is a picture of death. And he has to give a sacrifice, boom, to bring her forth and all that. That's already set up, you know, from the beginning before creation. So what's happening here is when you think of marriage, and it's like, well, yeah, you can use the term metaphor. I'm not, I have no problem with that. But understand that the metaphor is a picture of a deeper reality, a deeper wedding, a marriage that's eternal. Ours are temporal, Right? And in, in, in heaven, Jesus said they neither marry nor give in our marriage. Why? Well, we're already, we'll be married to the Lord. Amen? Spiritually speaking, I say this because when the Lord first called his people out of Egypt, he made a covenant with them at Sinai. And you know that was a marriage covenant. And, and marriage is just one of the ways we get our brains around this. And one of the ways that God has us get our brains around it, there's all these different pictures because salvation is just so rich, so deep, so profound, so beautiful. But marriage is definitely one of the most beautiful. It floors me. And from the very beginning, the Lord had called them to himself. And when he brought them to himself, after he delivered them from Egypt through the Passover Lamb's blood, right? The lambs that were slain, which were a picture of Christ. You know, pictures, 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 types everywhere, right? What happened? Well, he wooed them in the wilderness. Betrothed them to himself is the language he uses, engagement. In fact, in Jeremiah chapter 2, in fact, you could just go to your left because there's Jeremiah. A little bit, a couple books to your left or so. In uh, Jeremiah chapter 2, go ahead and look at verses 1 and 2. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, I remember concerning the devotion of your youth. This is the first love. The love of your betrothals. They were engaged to him, to be married to him. You're following after me in the wilderness. Wow. Through a land not sown. 
Israel was holy to the Lord, the first of his harvest. All who are uh, of it became guilty. Evil came upon them, declares the Lord. So even though there was these betrothals and he wooed them in the wilderness, he talks about in chapter 2 and chapter 3 their apostasies, their backslidings, their stubborn hearts, and, and how his heart was broken as a result of what they had done. In fact, it's interesting. Look at chapter 2, verse 20. Didn't take long after they were engaged and then married to him. And the Sinaitic covenant at Mount Sinai, that was a marriage covenant. We know that because he says in Jeremiah chapter 31 that he became a husband to them when he made that covenant with them. And we have this language of wife and husband, not just, we have it also in Isaiah and elsewhere. Now it's interesting, in 2.20 we read this. For long ago I broke your yoke. Remember he set them free from Egypt? Guess what? He said he broke your yoke too if you became a Christian. Amen? Set you free from the Egypt of this world, this world system. I broke your yoke and tore off your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. For on every high hill and under every tree you have lain down as a harlot. How? To worship false gods. See, a woman or a man who's unfaithful to their wedding covenant enters into adultery. But from a level in our relationship with God, creating his image, created love him with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. When we turn to another God, a false God, an idol, we commit spiritual adultery. James 4.4 4 warns believers in the New Testament, you adulteresses, know you not that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whoever makes himself a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So if we put the evil world system and its values before the Lord, we commit spiritual adultery. So as people were involved in spiritual adultery, putting false gods before the one true God. And guess what? It hurt God's heart. Like it would hurt anybody. But his people weren't repentant. It's not like they turned back even. It became a very, very ugly, sad situation. So guess what the Lord did? He gave her opportunity. He tried to bring her back over and over and over again. But he gave her this thing called free will. Okay? She could choose to reject him. Because he wasn't going to put a chip in her brain. I love you. I love you. I love you. That wouldn't be real. God is not into cause and effect. He's into influence and response. He's into relationship. Okay? He wants real relationships. And guess what? She wouldn't come back. And he said, you only come back to me in pretense. When she wanted water for her crops, right? She'd start to sing, go back to temple. You know how people are sometimes when they're like, things are going well and they're blessed and they're seeking the Lord on some level it seems and guess what? They get out of their trouble, they're going to church and all of a sudden they disappear for a while because things are better. Oh, and all of a sudden they're going through struggles, somebody breaks their heart maybe or they can't pay their bills and all of a sudden what happens? Oh, they're at church again. Wow. For three months straight until things are better again. Then they disappear. You don't see them for some time. Now I can honestly say, I don't, by the grace of God, I don't see that in our fellowship. Okay? Maybe it's happened with a few people. I don't know everybody's lives. I know most people here are pretty good, you know, to one degree or another. And people, but you don't come to this fellowship unless you fear and love God usually, okay? <laughs> so, but a lot of churches are like that. A lot of people are like that, though. Like, oh God, you know, when they're in a foxhole. 
But then when they're not in a foxhole, they live like practical atheists. And the Lord wants the devotion of your heart all the time. Jesus talked about those who draw close to him with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. And we need to make sure we apply God's truth to our own lives and that we draw close to God with our hearts, amen? And that we're true to him. But it's interesting, God gives her a writing of divorcement. Look at Jeremiah 3, verse 6. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 6. Now, it's interesting because this is great to share with Jewish folks. Then the Lord said to me, in the days of Josiah the king, have you seen what faithless Israel did? She went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and she was a harlot there. I thought after she was done, had done all these things, she would return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. Her sister Judah, remember the southern and the northern kingdom. And I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a writ of what? Divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went and was a harlot also. So what's interesting here is Jeremiah is written to Judah mainly. Hosea is more to the northern kingdom. And now Jeremiah is saying, hey, God divorced the northern kingdom. And you're even worse than the northern kingdom, he says over and over again in Ezekiel, Jeremiah. And he says he's also going to bring the same judgment upon her. In fact, in Jeremiah chapter 31, because he's divorced them, he has to make a new covenant, not with just the northern kingdom, but with the southern kingdom as well. Even though I was a husband to you. In other words, he wasn't a husband to either of them because Judah felt the same way she did. The, the Judah is not saved through the old covenant. They're not right with God through the old covenant. They are under a curse, just like the northern kingdom. And he had to make a new covenant with both the house of Judah and the house of Israel, the northern kingdom. And says, even though I was a husband to you, I'm making a new covenant with you, not like the covenant I made with you at Mount Sinai. So they're breaking that old covenant he made at Sinai. By the way, you guys, this is a great way to witness the Jewish people. Because a lot of Jewish people, especially when in Israel in the land, they'll say, well, you guys have your relationship with God. A lot of will say that, you know. But we have our relationship with God under, under the covenant of Moses, Mount Sinai, and so forth. And you know, one of the ways I witness to him, I say, sorry, man, but you don't. God divorced you under that covenant because you guys turned to idolatry and refused to repent. Now, when I was in Israel, some of you heard the story. I'm going to tell, tell a brief version of it. I went to Israel with a bunch of the pastors in Simi Valley, and it was really nice. Uh, uh, Jeff Morris uh, got a bunch of money together and sent a bunch of us pastors, and we were in a bus and our wives and so forth. And we went into this little trinket store with two Pharisees there that are brothers. And the Pharisees, one of them, his whole job was to, his whole goal was to disprove Jesus as the Messiah, saying he's not the Messiah. And I really personally wasn't too happy about being there because I felt it wasn't good for some of the people whose faith might not have been as strong as others. Now, you're, you're there with a bunch of pastors and pastors' wives, but you don't know where people are at. I don't know where all the wives are at and so forth. And we're going to listen to this guy go on for an hour maybe about why Jesus isn't the Messiah. And he starts turning to scriptures, trying to disprove Jesus as Messiah. But before he even comes out, we get in there, and there's a bunch of us, and we're like sardines. And I moved to the back because other people were moving in. And I was like, you know what? I was a little disgruntled about the decision to go in there 
But if you know me, I'm not a complainer. So I thought, I'm just going to pray and cry out to the Lord and pray that nobody's faith would be harmed because we're in this, on this beautiful trip and I don't know what we're doing here, you know. Because it's not like we're going to have time to rebut him and all that stuff. And we're going to be on to the next thing. I go, this can really hurt people, I'm thinking, you know, not knowing what God has in mind. So I go and I sit on this basket in the back. And I'm, I'm going to just pray. And there's no place really to sit. And then we're squeezed in like sardines, you know. And I'm like, man. And then a lady comes and stands right next to me. And I'm like, I need to be a gentleman. I get up. So she could sit there. But when I get up, I'm bigger than her. And I'm like, man. So I squeeze to the middle of this area where there's like this, you know, bunch of trinkets on this, you know, this middle area. And then I'll send the two brothers come out in back of this thing where they, you know, where they would sell things. And one of the brothers works his way right next to me. I'm like, okay, Jesus, you always do these things. <laughs> he is so sovereign, guys. He just moves us around. And I'd been praying. He goes, I guess that's why he said, okay, Joe, you've been praying about this. And this guy went into these deals, and he's like, and I'm going through Isaiah 53, the Messianic passage that we use most to show Jesus, amen? It's like, this says his offspring will prosper. That word offspring, literally, it's talking about having children. Jesus didn't have any children. I'm like, hey, uh, excuse me, uh, that word offspring is used in Isaiah 2, as the offspring of the Jewish leaders are serpent snakes. Is that literal? Oh, well, let's go on to this, you know. <laughs> and, you know, we're talking, and it came up that, you know, that God had made a new covenant. And he said, no, no, just a new covenant means he kind of just is renewing the old covenant. And I said, mm -mm, uh uh. It says that he divorced you under the old covenant that you cannot relate to him through the law of Moses and be right with God through that law because he divorced you. He's no longer married to you. And you need a new covenant. And he's like, that's not true. It doesn't say that anywhere. I'm like, oh, poor guy, checkmate. <laughs> Jeremiah chapter 3, folks. And as I'm getting Jeremiah 3 and we're going through it, he's like, okay, that's enough for today. That's 15 minutes into it. And we all left. And... I left, but I turned back and went back. And I pleaded with him based on Joseph being rejected by his brethren, which represented the 12 tribes of Israel. Remember that? And how you're blind right now. You don't see it, but Joseph's a picture of Jesus. He's been rejected, and he's giving bread to the world. We take communion every Sunday. It's a picture of the salvation that we have in Jesus, you know? And I, I, I get sometimes really passionate. don't even know what I'm doing. I'm like on my knees, literally. I'm like, okay, get up. <laughs> he's probably tripping on. He's just listening, you know? And uh, just pleading with him you know, to understand who Jesus is. He just listened. He didn't say a word. Then I left and prayed for him. But this is a great passage to share with Jews to let them know that they can't be saved through the law of Moses. Nobody can keep the law and please God and be perfect. As it says in the Old Testament, Paul quotes it in Galatians chapter 3, that if you're going to try to keep the law to be saved, you have to keep the whole entire law. The Bible says if we fail in one point of law, we failed in, we've broken the whole law. Amen. We're guilty before God. And we can't relate to God and be right with him based on our performance. It's based on God's grace and forgiving us through sending his son in the gospel to die for our sins and rise again. So we, when we're looking at Hosea, God expressly gives her a writing of divorcement in Hosea chapter 3. And it's quite interesting because he's not done with her though. He's not done with her. He still loves her. 
He still loves her. Now it's interesting. Poor Hosea. Oh, Hosea, poor guy. Because God tells him to marry her and then he's going to have some illegitimate children. His first child was not illegitimate though. When he first married her, Hosea chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. So he went to Gomer. I mean, the woman's name is Gomer. From the get-go, I mean, if your name Gomer, no, no, I'm sorry. But it just, in those days, it wasn't the coolest name, I don't think, though. Maybe it was, I don't know. Now I'm sure it's a cool name in your household. Uh, verse 3, <laughs> so he went to Gomer, the daughter of Deblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, name him Jezreel, for yet in a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Now, there was a lot of bloodshed, and Jehu was a mixed king. He did some good, did some bad, a lot of bad too, because he tolerated the, the worship of the calves in the north. Uh, and now God's going to be judging the house of Jehu because he slaughtered the house of Ahab, who was a wicked king, right, and in, in the valley of Jezreel. And what he's saying is, this, is Jezreel, this, this, the name of your daughter, represents the judgment that's going to be, a, there's going to be a slaughter in Israel because of your sin. Whew. That is pretty radical, isn't it? That's pretty heavy. Now, next, Gomer finds herself pregnant again, but this is a illegitimate daughter, from another man. And we go to Hosea chapter 1 verse 6. Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, that is to Hosea, name her Lo-Ruhamah. Lo-Ruhamah. For I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I would ever forgive them. Wow. Based on the old covenant, they're not going to be forgiven. It's going to be something, if they ever be forgiven, something really radical is going to happen. But based on their standing before God, they can't be forgiven. Lo, wow, that's a crazy name. Lo, Ruhama. Lo, Ruhama. Lo means no or not. And Ruhama means pitied, mercied. So this daughter's name, one's name is Jezreel, and the other daughter's name is no pity, no mercy. Uh, no mercy, can you give me some tea? You know, can you imagine that being your name? No pity, no mercy. Now, it's important to understand that God is gracious and compassionate and forgiving, but if we walk in rebellion to him over and over again and refuse to repent, listen to what it says in Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood uh, there with him. And this is in the giving of the old covenant. And he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the, that is uh, the context here is Moses is calling the name of the Lord. He's saying, Lord, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And the Lord showed him his back parts, his afterglow. Because if he saw the Lord in all his glory, he's a consuming fire. He'd just be like a piece of tissue before a flamethrower, even worse. But he shows him his afterglow. And you know what he says? The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, because God is love, and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands and forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sin. Wow, I love that. That's, that's who our God is. Yet he's also holy and righteous. Amen? And just. And if there's unrepentant sin and people are killing each other and having sex with animals and sacrificing their children to the fire and they don't repent, well, 
goes on to say, yet he would by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and on their children and on their grandchildren to the third and fourth generations, as other passages say, that say the same thing here, on those who hate him. So those who turn away from him and then their children hate him and their grandchildren hate him, his punishment is there. And guess what? Israel's punishment had come. She continued and persisted in rebellion to God. Well, then we have another child. She's pregnant with another child in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. When she had weaned low Rahama, just after she weaned low Rahama, done breastfeeding, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Lo-Ami, Lo means not, and Ami means, uh, Ami means my people or my children. Not my children. So one's child, one of the child's names is Jezreel, Valley of Slaughter. One's name is Lo-Rohama, no mercy, no pity. Another child is named, you know, <laughs> not my children, Lo-Ami. Can you imagine him strolling through the park, pushing his kids on the swings? Somebody comes up, Wow! I'm not sure what the swings were like there. One kid looks like you, but the other kids don't look anything like you. Yeah. What are their names? Uh, not pity, no pity, and, and what's this one's name? Uh, not my child. Can you imagine that? His, he's a living parable, and his children are a living parable, and his wife is part of that parable. She's unfaithful to him. Oh, wait, aren't you the guy that's married to that prostitute? Yeah, it's me. You're the guy that wanted to be a prophet when you were a kid. I <laughs> know. But uh, it's tough. Because we enter into his sufferings. This is the real world we live in. People are jaded. People are sinful. People are evil. Jesus said to his own disciples, you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. Okay, we have fallen natures. And they were given over to their fallenness. And they became darker and darker. This is amazing when you think about it. This whole story is just crazy, but God's given us a picture. Because if it stopped there and he just wiped them out and was done with them, it would be just and understandable. You'd even say, wow, he gave them a lot of time. He was merciful for a long time. They didn't repent. But it doesn't stop there. He pursues them. That's what blows me away about God's great love and why this is the greatest love story ever told. Now, it gets heavier and heavier. That's why I'm glad I, because what I did, when I had like almost 25 pages, I'm like, if I'm going to get this done, I'm going to have to race through it. <laughs> You'll be like, okay, what? try to remember some of that, you know? But we'll do two parts, and we'll, there's a little more I want to say during this part. You've got some time left here, like 20 more minutes or so, or actually longer than that, but we'll see when we get done. Hosea chapter 2, go to Hosea chapter 2. By the way, let me say this, as you're going to Hosea chapter 2, when he says, not my children, right? And when you read the end of there, and there I will, uh, when you read, he says, you are not my people, I am not your God. You know what it literally says in the Hebrew, it transliterates to, and I am not, I am to you. Remember he revealed himself in the golden bush? I am that I am. He says, I am, not I am to you. Wow. I'm not your God. No mercy on you now. Because guess what? They spurred his mercy and just be, used it as an excuse to become more wicked and tried to taunt the Lord. Now it's interesting because 
when you look at all this, God said in Leviticus chapter 26, verse 12, quote, I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. And now he says, I am not, I am to you. You're not my people. I have no mercy on you now. I'm going to give you over to your sin. And the Bible says, hard is the way of the transgressor. And God gives us over to our sin to teach us so we can learn. And it says your own backslidings will teach you. So even giving us over to sin can sometimes be the only wake-up call people get. And now in Hosea chapter 2, go to chapter 2, verse 1. Say to your brothers, Ami, and your sisters, Ruhamah, contend with your mother, contend, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Wow. And let her put away her harlotry from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. So God talks to Hosea, who tells the children, plead with your mother to repent. I mean, you have kids pleading with you, right? Name, no pity, not my child. Mom, turn from your sin. You're just wrecking your life. You're hurting other people in the process. Verse 2, contend with your, mo your mother. Contend, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. And have her put away your harlotry from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. Or I will strip her naked. Isn't that interesting? I will strip her naked and expose her as on the day when she was born. Meaning, see, I'm going to strip her totally naked. I also will make her like a wilderness, make her like a desert land, and slay her with thirst. So the idea here is Gomer is going to be literally stripped naked, but she's going to be a picture of the children of Israel whose land will be stripped of their wool, of their flax, everything that makes clothes, and they'll be taken naked into a land of slavery, the land of the Assyrians. And this idea is given over, given again and again, whereby she's going to be under a curse. Look at chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 now of Hosea. Therefore I will take back my grain and harvest time and my new wine in its season. I also will take away my wool and my flax. See, they were worshiping gods like Baal or Baal, the rain god, who, oh, we're going to worship Baal. And he's going to say, God say, you worship Baal and these other gods? I'm cutting off the rain. I'm the one in charge. And you're going to see who's in charge. And the one you're betraying, the one who delivered you from the land of Egypt. You shouldn't even be here in the promised land. I gave you a land that wasn't even yours. And look what you've done. You've turned to these false gods. Now notice what he says. Therefore I will uh, take back my grain in the harvest time and the new wine in the season. I will also take my wool and my flax. Now look at Given to cover her nakedness. See that? He's going to stop the produce. And the things that she used to cover her nakedness. So we read in verse 10. And then I will uncover her lewdness. Because people are going to see you for who you really are. In the sight of her lovers. And no one will rescue her out of my hand. When God judges, he judges, man. And it's quite interesting. Because this is a picture of her going to the lowest of the low. She ends up on the auction block. She ends up being for sale as a slave. She goes from adultery to prostitution to becoming a slave and nobody's rescuing her. In fact, she is such a disheveled, homely slave at this point that no one even seems to want to buy her. And you get the idea because of how much she's actually purchased for a pretty cheap cost. That's what sin does to you folks. It makes you ugly. It makes you unlovable to where the only one that 
can really love you when you give yourself running the full course of sin is God or somebody who has the love of God in their heart. And don't get into sin, man. Sin makes you an ugly person, okay? And sin enslaves you. In Romans chapter 6, we're told, I think it's in verse 16, that whatever we yield ourselves to, we become a slave to. And when you give into sin and you begin to practice sin and you put idols before the Lord, you become enslaved. And it's important that we don't allow that to happen in our lives. Now, it's very interesting because guess what? When you read Hosea, when you read Ezekiel and Jeremiah, guess what? God's people are described over and over again as going into slavery, into other nations, and going naked, which was very humiliating for the Jews, you know? I mean, even the men, you know, they wore their robes down to their, near their ankles, okay? And it was a symbol of shame. And we read in Ezekiel chapter 13, verse 36 and 37, thus says the Lord God, because of your lewdness was poured out and your nakedness uncovered through the, your harlotries with your lovers. I Meaning you got naked with people in private and in all your detestable idols, because a lot of these were, you know, fertility gods and, you know, involved sexual perversion and so forth with all your detestable idols, and because of the blood of your sons, which you gave to the idols, they sacrificed their children to these demon gods. Therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers and whom you took, in whom you took pleasure, even those whom you loved, and all those whom you hated. So I will gather them against you from every direction and expose your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness. Now he's not talking to Gomer. This is the Lord talking to his people who rejected him and are not his people now. Ezekiel 23, verse 18, and then verse 23 and following. She uncovered her harlotries and uncovered her nakedness. Then I became disgusted with her. Yeah, Lord can become disgusted with us. As I became disgusted with her sister. Who's her sister? He's talking to Judah now, and her sister is Israel. They will deal with you in hatred, take all your property, and leave you naked and bare. And the nakedness of your harlotries will be uncovered, both your lewdness and your harlotries. These things will be done to you because you have played the harlot with the nations. Because they began to worship their gods and rely on them instead of the Lord. Because you have called yourself with their idols or defiled yourself with their idols. You became unclean through the idolatry. You have walked in the way of your sister, therefore I will give her cup into your hand. Wow. This is amazing now guess what he had a marriage covenant with her she violated the marriage covenant when you see the terms of the marriage covenant that's the mosaic law that's the covenant contract and guess what when you go back to the covenant law you read in deuteronomy chapter 28 for instance how if she's a faithful wife he'll bless her the first 15 verses i was looking at these recently uh, yesterday actually, some of them. It's just all these blessings. If she obeys the Lord, loves him back. But in verses 16 and following, it's all these curses that will come upon her if she turns from the Lord. And guess what one of those curses was? Slavery and also nakedness, okay? Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Uh, verse 16 says, but 
it shall, if it come about, if you do not obey the Lord your God, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, and which uh, I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. You're going to be overtaken with curses. And then in verse 47 and following, listen to this. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and glad heart. Remember, we're supposed to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Be thankful. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart for the abundance of all things. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger, in thirst, in nakedness, and in the lack of all things. And he will put an iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed you. Wow. God's serious, man. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, for he is a consuming fire. This is really radical when you think about it, man. This is mind-blowing. Verse 49, the very next verse, the Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the ends of the earth, and as the eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you shall not understand. Wow. So this is way back, you know, several, you know, hundreds of years before what's happening in the Assyrian kingdom. And then guess what? God uses this picture of Gomer being stripped naked and enslaved because of her sin as a picture of a really powerful illustration of what God said would happen to the nation. And then guess what happens? It happens to Assyria. Then 150 years plus later, it happens to the southern kingdom of Judah. And they're stripped naked and go into captivity. They become enslaved. When we're not walking with Jesus, we're naked before God. He sees everything. Everything is naked before him, by the way. But we have no covering for our sin. And we become enslaved to sin. It's important that we really wrap our brains around this. And thankfully, the story does not end there. Amen? Look at Hosea chapter 3, verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, this is after she has all these illegitimate children, has become, you know, a walking proverb, a parable. Then the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband. Wow. Yet an adulteress. Hosea kept loving her. Isn't that a trip? And he says, go love her. Even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes, things that were used in worship of false gods. Think about what's going on here, Hosea. He picked Hosea because he knew to one degree or another he would be a prophet who would be a man after his heart to some degree, right? And he would still love his wife even though she, because love, love, biblical love, God's love is far different than the world's love. In the world's love, they fall in and out of love. Oh, I, I feel like I'm in love. A week later, you know, all over Facebook, we broke up and I hate him. You know, it's like, what in the world happened there? I won't tell you whose Facebook I was just looking at. No, I'm just kidding. I don't think I've ever visited anybody's Facebook except when I was researching or something. Uh, I don't even have a Facebook. Somebody took my Facebook. Was it my Facebook they took? Yeah, some, uh, some kid, I think it was like 13 years old, he was answering, pretending to be me for years. I didn't know it, you know. Hey, I love your video on this. Oh, thanks a lot. And then when he was new, he said, yay, I got up to 100 people. I'm like, 
have shown me this. I'm like, I'm not like that. Well, I got 100. I mean, maybe when we get 100,000, I was happy, but, you know, uh, on our uh, Good Fight site. But uh, I'm like, who is this kid? And then they notified him. He said, well, I felt it was inactive, and I thought somebody should answer for him. <laughs> I just, you know, because he's a fan of the ministry. Uh, could have made it ugly, so thank you for the hard work you did. Uh, <laughs> I guess, you know. Uh, then Tony took control of it, so. And when you see me talking, it's still not me. I've never been on it, okay? <laughs> Hopefully Tony's doing a good job too. Uh, anyway, so yeah, he let, they let people know that I'm not on there. But you know, it's interesting because love is a choice. He says, go and love her, all right? He was already making the choice. He was abiding, trying to love her. I'm sure he went through the most painful times. But God says, go and love her. And he says, because I love my people, Israel still, even though they've done this to me. That heavy. And you can't, as a Christian, if you're a Christian, you know that love is a choice. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. When did God choose to give his only son? Husband, love your, love, your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. He chose to do that. We already mentioned this. This was part of his eternal purpose before the world was created. Amen? Before the universe was created. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, Ephesians 1, 11, we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. That was God's plan to redeem a people that whosoever will could be saved and we'd be part of that purpose. And those who had believed, he said he sealed. He knew who would believe and who would reject. He's always had this plan. And he knew we would go astray, but he chose that he'd love us. Wow, it's just, it's mind-boggling when we think about it. So I encourage you as uh, if, you're, if you're married or you're going to be married sometime in the future, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for He's a picture of the kind of love we're, we're supposed to walk in. Amen? Well, he's Christ. I'm not Jesus. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So hopefully your spouse won't do this, you know, and become a prostitute, you know. And hopefully God doesn't appear to you saying, name your kid this, you know. Be tough, you know. Uh, we don't have prophets in the sense that they did in, the, in those days. But it's interesting that God will call you to endure pain because everybody will go through some pain. Paul said in marriage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if you get married, you will have trouble in the flesh. He says, I wish everybody was single like me. I'm trying to spare you. <laughs> wow, that's heavy. I mean, there will be some hard times during your marriage at times. But then Paul says, Thank, I'm glad he says this, but not everybody has the gift I have. <laughs> Everybody has to get the singleness, you know. Some do. And if you do, praise God, you're blessed and you're actually better off, the Bible says. I don't know why people don't preach that. That's the Bible. That's truth. That if you're single, you have to give singleness, you're better off than if you get married, Paul says. He's trying to spare you. But what if you don't have the gift of singleness? Well, then you're probably not better off, you know. Uh, then you pray and then see what happens, you know. Uh, but it's interesting because, by, by the way, and there's, it's beautiful in First Peter chapter 3 when I do premarital counseling and sometimes when I do marital counseling, I point out that it talks about your, your team and the wife is the grace of life. She's like the whipped cream on the cake. Okay, God still wants to bless. He gets a wife, gets a good thing, amen, better than many rubies. So marriage is incredibly beautiful too. But there is that time, those times in your life where you can go through some hard times because whenever your spouse is less than perfect, which would be every day to some degree, there's going to be a little bit of uh, pain, and you're bringing some pain too. The important thing is to walk in the Spirit, amen? To walk in righteousness, to grow in grace, 
to be merciful, to be filled with love toward one another, amen, and be forgiving. It's important. I mean, the most important thing you can do in a marriage relationship is be a good forgiver, amen, be, and recognize what Christ has done for you, and then walk the way God's called you to walk. So, but notice here, he's called to make a choice, and the practical application there is love's a choice. So you need to love your spouse and go the extra mile. When you feel like there's been barbs against you or the, your spouse woke up on the wrong side of the bed or whatever, just think what Jose went through. Nothing. You're going through nothing compared to what he went through. But Joe, no, you don't get it. I'm going through exactly what he's going through. Well, praise God, because God got through Hosea through it. And guess what? Hosea is going through what God went through on an infinite level, feeling infinite pain. And God is in us as believers and gives us strength. And we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Amen. But, you know, 1 John says, I write these things that you don't sin, but if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ the righteous. There is forgiveness if there's repentance. But I like the first part of that too. I write these things that you don't sin. Don't sin and cause problems in your relationship. Right? And if there's been problems in your relationship, even of this nature, very dark, painful situation of unfaithfulness, Forgive. You know, notice right here, God doesn't say, give her a right of divorcement right now. Remember, God continued to have mercy upon the, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom for a long time until she wouldn't come back, but in, re, in pretense. And what does he call her to do, Hosea to do? Go and love her still, even though she's done this to you. I believe that's the highest road. So in the handful of situations I've dealt with as a pastor of adultery in this church, and it's just been a handful that I know of, we don't say, oh yeah, you should just get them divorced. No, I say try to forgive, man. Try to, and you know what? There's trophies. You would never even know what some people went through here in this fellowship of God's grace to where God brought forgiveness and the last chapters of those lives who've, of people that have been through that kind of thing are way more beautiful than the first. And some of the most powerful and precious and beautiful marriages in our fellowship is people I know that went through some really hard times early on, which shows you that God can redeem. Amen? And God can... God can establish and God can strengthen. So I want to encourage you to walk in love. But you know what? The key is to not go that route in the first place. Amen. Spare yourself a lot of pain, a lot of sadness, a lot of anxiety. So he says in verse 3, Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved of her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. Wow. So he's going to continue to love her but not just love her in word and say, hey, I love you still. He's going to love her sacrificially because she is on the auction block. She has become a slave. She is for sale. And then we read in verse 2, so I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. Wow. He bought her off the auction block. That's heavy, huh? And you know what's crazy about this? She's stripped naked. That's what they would do when they'd sell slaves in ancient times. Even today, sometimes. Even in, sadly, there's sex trafficking going on. Even, there's a lot of sex trafficking right in our own country, guys. And oftentimes, when people are selling slaves, they'll strip them to show the goods. Well, guess what? She was going to different men. She became not just an adulteress, but a prostitute. And what happened? She became a slave, and now she's stripped naked. We read that in chapter 2, that God said he would strip her naked and by giving her over to her sin. She's stripped naked, and guess what? 
you know the price he paid 15 shekels of silver wow and wow and look at that man and a homer and a half of barley that's hardly anything financially speaking nobody wanted her at that point you go live a life of sin and celebrate your independence from god and go do your own thing you reduce yourself to a loaf of bread man worse because loaf of bread isn't evil you become evil and disgusting you need to repent don't let that happen to you. And if it's happened to you, you need to turn from that sin. Amen? So she's not even worth anything to the other people in the slave market. Guess what? Hosea cares about her, right? That may be everything he has. It may be of great value to him because guess what? He's been raising kids that aren't his, right? He's been going through a lot of turmoil in his life, you know? There's no verse that talks about her shopping habits, but probably had some bad ones. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but he just, that may be all he has. We don't know. We just know that she was actually quite inexpensive, and, which is really, really sad. Now, it's interesting because here, I want you to go to Hosea chapter 13, verse 4 now. Hosea chapter 13, verse 4. Yet I have been the Lord your God since the land of what? Egypt. That's when he made that covenant with them, right? And he became a husband to them, according to Jeremiah 31, 31. And you were not to know any God except me. That was the plan. For there is no Savior besides me. This is where it is such a powerful typology. It's all a picture of our God. The Lord says that when I made that covenant with you, I was supposed to be your only God. And there's no Savior besides me. Wow. Wait a minute. No Savior besides him. Who's our Savior, guys? Jesus. He's the only Savior. He's the Yahweh of the Old Testament. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Ego ho on in the Greek. Before Abraham was, I am. He was the one in the burning bush speaking to Moses. He's the one that made the covenant with them to marry him. Amen? Amen. There's salvation in no other name but the name of Jesus. The name Hosea, not an accident, means salvation. It can be translated salvation or he saves. It's from the same Hebrew root as Yeshua, from which we get Jesus in the Greek, or Jesus in our English. And Jesus' name means what? He will save his people from their sins. Matthew one twenty one. Are you with me? Hosea is a picture of God. We get that, right? But God, we're God's people. He gives them a divorce paper because they won't come back. But he still isn't going to give up on her. So he says in Hosea, or Jeremiah 31, I gave you a right of divorce, even though I was a husband unto you uh, at Mount Sinai. But I will make a new covenant with you. Not like the covenant with you, he says, that I made at Mount Sinai. That's where he mentions Sinai. I'm going to make a new covenant with you. And he says it's going to be based on forgiveness. I'm going to write my, my law on your heart. A new covenant. And by the way, in Hebrews chapter 8 and in Hebrews chapter 10, those verses in Jeremiah are quoted to the Hebrew Christians. They've got this new covenant. And in Luke chapter 22, Jesus makes a new covenant with his disciples, right? And what does he do? He breaks out the bread. 
He breaks out the fruit of the vine, the wine, right? The emblems of the sacrifice that he'll make for them on the cross the next night. See, wait a minute. What's God doing with them doing this? How did God do that? Because God became a man, amen? Amen. This is why this is the greatest love story of the universe. God was betrayed by his wife. She wouldn't come back. He couldn't save her under the old covenant. And by the way, think about this. It gets really heavy. According to the Old Testament, what was the punishment for adulteresses? Death by stoning. Did God say, go, Hosea, go and stone your wife. You have the right to do it. No. Go and love her. And then you know what love meant? Pain to get her out of enslavement. Well, guess what? You are Gomer. You guys are Gomer. Me? Gomer too. We're all Gomer. Hi, Gomer. That's you. Hi, Gomer. In the mirror. We're all the, we all fall short of God's glory and have sinned. Amen? But the incredible thing is this, this God who created the entire universe, who is not a man, to buy us, he couldn't just use 100 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. The Bible says the soul is very costly and no one could redeem his brother. God became a man. He had to become a man to get us to pay the price. Because guess what? The price is death. What's the wage of sin? Death. What should happen to Gomer? She'd be stoned to death. Apostasy from the law, according to Hebrews chapter 10, 26 through 31, and various paths of the Old Testament, is death. The woman caught in adultery. They brought her before Jesus to stone her to death. But they had their own sin. The only one that could cast a stone legitimately in that setting was God. But what happened? In the beginning, John 1, 1 through 3, was the Word. And the Word was with God, face to face with God. And the Word was God. The Word's with the Father, God, and He is God. And all things were made by Him, and nothing that came to being came to being but by Him. And then in chapter 1, verse 14, 14, and the Word became what? Flesh and dwelt among us. Wow. God became a man. And He loved us. Just like he told Gomer to love, who did Jesus reach out to? The drunkards, the prostitutes, remember that? The tax gatherers, everybody, whoever would come. And then he made a new covenant with his disciples, those who'd received. And then the next day he went to the cross. And on the cross, what, did he, what happened when he went to the cross? Well, it's quite interesting because in chapter 20, verse 27, verse 28, it says they stripped him. See the typology? The types are beautiful. They just, ooh, stab me in the heart in such a beautiful way. Like, wow, God. He took the place of Jose, of, of Gomer. Gomer was stripped. He became a servant. She was a slave. He became a servant. And he was stripped, chapter 27, verse 28. And they whipped him. We don't know that she was whipped. And then he went to the cross. We don't know if he was totally naked or not or had a loincloth. It doesn't say. Some commentators believe he was just totally naked. That was shame. He was totally innocent. He was without any sin at all. Yet he's bearing our penalty. Part of the curse of the law was to be naked, shamed. And then he went to the cross. 
Because the Bible says in the Old Testament, cursed everyone who hangs on a tree. That was part of the, one of the ways you bore the curse of sin. But he was sinless. But he took Gomer or our sin upon himself. It's heavy. And he died for our sin on the cross. He said what? Paid in full, amen? He paid the price. Not 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley, but with his precious blood, his very life. I think what, Ho- what Hosea is doing is radical. Wow, look at this man. That's amazing. Nothing compared to what your God did for you and me. Amen? It's just mind-boggling. And in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, in the New Testament, and verse 13, it says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. If you try to keep the Old Testament law, like Gomer, you be under a curse, you can't keep it. For it is written, Curses everyone who does not abide in all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Yet we read in verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Amen. Wow, he became cursed for us so we could be accepted and we didn't have to be cursed forever, amen, and separated from God. And guess what? Hosea bought his wife, bought, bought his wife Gomer back, clothed her, brought her back into the household. Guess what the Lord does with us? He clothes us in the garments of salvation. He, closes, he puts clothes upon us, the robes of his righteousness. Isaiah 61.10 says, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed, arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. Describes it as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Wow. Even though we, were fil- we had filthy rags on. It's just mind-blowing, guys. He didn't redeem us with 15 shekels of silver. Listen to what it says in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Knowing that you were not redeemed or bought, that's you and me, with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood. But with precious blood. As of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Wow. You know what's interesting? In science, medical science now, they can replicate all kinds of things in your body, right? People walk around with fake bones, fake hips, fake knees, all kinds of things. They can do all kinds of things. It's crazy what they can recreate to a degree. You know what they haven't been able to recreate? Blood. The life is in the blood, the Bible says. You can have a blood donor, but you can't just fill yourself up with full of a synthetic substance and, oh, great blood that's interesting i was watching a secular video because one of my grandchildren hopped in my lap it was ariella and sometimes we'll look at different things and i try to uh, and she came in and sometimes i'm working but sometimes i'll five minutes she goes can we look at something again like the blood again because we were like on blood vessels or something so i stuck it on and this doctor's talking about how he's saying just that basically that he didn't mention what but he says we replicate a lot of different things but we can't copy blood. We still don't know how to make blood. Ha! Life is in the blood. 1711 of Leviticus. Amen. God's blood is special. In fact, listen to what it says on chapter 20, verse 28 of Acts. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his. Shepherd the church of who? Of God which he, God, purchased with his own blood. 
We can't redeem our brothers. God had to become a man to save us, amen? To save us out of prostitution, to save us from the curse, to save us out of our adulteries. And it's through that that he, through his shed blood, that he saved us, amen? Am I exaggerating? Or is this the most beautiful love story in the universe? You can't touch it. You can't be, Hollywood can't even begin to approach this story. And Hollywood stories are fake almost always. This is real, amen? And what's a blow mind is all these pictures, these wedding portraits are in the Old Testament and the Jews, it just goes over their heads still because it says there's a veil over their eyes. Now keep in mind, the early church was all Jewish believers, okay? Some of them got it, right? But it won't be until Joseph fed the Gentiles, then his brothers, the 12 tribes, that fathered the 12 tribes, recognized their plight. And then he had mercy on them. The Jews, one day it says their eyes will be open and all Israel will be saved. Ha! Pretty amazing, huh? Right now, you and I, Gentiles and Jews, he died for all of us, amen? Somebody asked your name, you know, you might say to him sometime, I just thought about this, maybe this isn't the best approach, but you want to witness somebody, what's your name, Gomer? <laughs> Gomer, oh, that's interesting, no, be honest, you don't, it's kind of weird, especially for a guy, right? Well, Gomer Pyle, right? He had some problems. Uh, Gomer, you know? <laughs> Gomer, well, you're Gomer too. Huh? And you start sharing the gospel. You know, I don't know if you want to use that. I use all kinds of weird approaches that people listen because sometimes it's just strange, you know. But before you know it, they're listening, you know. And, uh, but I just want to encourage you guys. Today, you need to recognize you and I are Gomer. We deserve death. We were slaves to sin. God became a man. Died on the cross. Hosea is a picture of him, amen. But he didn't just buy us with silver. He bought us with his precious blood. So we could be saved, amen? And guess what? We love him because he what? First loved us, amen? He was forgiven much, loves much. Have you been forgiven much? All of your sins if you're putting your trust in Jesus. So therefore you should love much. What does love look like? Jesus says, if you love me, you will what? Obey my commandments. You can see if you're really loving the Lord or not. If you're rebelling him, you're not loving him. You're having a hard heart. You need to repent. Because guess what? If I would have kept reading Hosea chapter 3, and we just scratched the surface. We have one more message on this, part 2. He goes on to say, come and live with me again. And if you abide with me and remain faithful, you have to repent. He invited her back. But he didn't invite her back and give her the license to just live in rebellion to him as a prostitute and adulteress anymore. She had to repent. And if you want to be cleansed and benefit for the purchase or the payment that was made on your behalf, you have to repent. Repent means to have a change of heart. The Greek word is metanoia. It means to have a change of heart, a change of will, right? A change of mind. And no longer being in rebellion to Jesus, but a repentant heart turns in your heart from rebellion and turns in faith in your heart to Jesus and puts your trust in Jesus. Amen. How could you not want to follow the one Savior? The one who in Hosea says, I am the only Savior. Yeah, he is. And he became a man. And he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. How could you reject such a great, incredible, magnificent love? I can't fathom why any, how anybody could. Now, I rejected it when I was like 
you know, a teenager to 17 years old. And just around the time I was turning 18, I finally recognized my folly. But when you realize what's going on and who he is and what he's done, I don't see how you could reject this salvation because it's eternal life. It's being with him forever, right? Rather than being separated from him in outer darkness. So if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you right now to embrace him as your Lord and Savior, to repent of a life of rebellion against him and call upon him. Jesus said, the Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be what? Saved. Embrace him and you'll be, you'll be delivered from slavery. You'll be delivered from sin. You'll be delivered from the cursed law. You'll be delivered from death. You'll be delivered from hell. But you have to embrace him as your Lord and Savior. Man, and when you do, I have not, not one day did I ever regret and say, man, I wish I went to become a Christian. Every day I'm so thankful for my salvation in Christ. And so will you be if you turn to him. So I encourage you to cry out to the Lord now and receive his salvation if you haven't. And for those of us who are saved, let's continue to rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice, amen, and live for him and be faithful as God is to us, to our spouses and to one another in Christ. Can we all please stand up as we pass out the cup and the bread?